This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 44, Tips for Visiting People with Moderate to Severe Dementia Who Are Living in Facilities. First, I would love to wish all of my listeners who are moms a happy Mother's Day. And for those single dads who are doing it all on their own, a happy Mother's Day to you as well. True story. When I was raising my kids by myself, my children would give me both a Mother's Day and a Father's Day card. I always thought it was cute. My eldest Claire started that and it became a thing. So happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And today's episode is in response to the same question I was asked multiple times last week. And that was, how do I visit my family member living with dementia who doesn't seem to know that I'm eating there or who doesn't even know who I am? One of the people asking me this question followed up with, my mother isn't even there anymore. She's gone. And it really can feel that way when the dementia is so deep that it's hard to connect with your loved one because they really seem to be in a whole different world. And I think it's important to continue to visit with your family members, even if you feel like, what's the point? And here's why. Your family member may forget that you were there as soon as you leave the immediate area. Or you may think they're not even aware that you're present, but we really don't know what's going on deep where they are in dementia land. And one of the things I have noticed, both good and bad, is if something causes positive feelings, those positive feelings persist even though the memory's gone. And the same way if something happens that's yucky. And think about it in your own life. If you have a really good morning, like you get up, you have your morning beverage, everything is going your way, you tend to stay in a good mood beyond that moment. By the same token, if you get up and as soon as you get out of bed, you step on, you you step in like dog crap or something because your dog had an accident in the middle of the night and you didn't know. I actually had that happen a few weeks ago where I got out of bed and I walked across the living room floor to let Amira out and she had an accident in the middle of the night and I stepped in it in bare feet. That that was pretty gross. Yeah. TMI people. But anyway, that yucky event threw me off for the rest of the day. So that's why you may feel like, shit, why am I here? Why am I bothering? And it's okay to feel that way because you wonder, is it, am I making a difference? 
And the thing is, I'm going to assume you are. So in today's podcast, I'm going to provide some ideas for ways to make the visit great for both of you. First, and this is a general statement that may not apply to everyone, frequent short visits are better than infrequent lengthier visits. That is three 15 to 30 minute visits a week are better than one weekly two hour visit. And this may sound counterintuitive, but here's why. A person who is in a facility likely has moderately severe dementia. And that stage of dementia, or those stages, result in a situation where the person living with dementia doesn't have the brain energy to tolerate a lengthy visit, no matter how much they may enjoy it or they may want to see you. Plus, you may be struggling to keep your family member engaged with you for the entire time, which then causes you to feel upset and anxious. I realize that frequent, brief visits can be unrealistic for some of you because of the distance you have to travel. I'm not trying to cause guilt or discomfort. I live 900 miles away from my own mom and it sucks. But if you are able to accomplish multiple short visits, that's the route to go. No pun intended. Also, if there are multiple family members who visit, let's say you have several cousins or siblings, you may want to coordinate with each other so that your visits are spread out rather than everyone showing up like Sunday afternoon. And again, it takes a lot of brain juice for your loved one to participate in visits with a lot of people or visits that happen one right after the other in a very short amount of time. There's no recovery time for the brain. And that may cause them to be overtired, irritable, or to check out even more or to appear agitated. Another rationale for spreading out the visits is multiple visits throughout the week especially by more than if it's you and a bunch of people and you're coordinating these visits, the multiple visits serve as a way to monitor your family member and the care they are getting. I can't speak for facilities in other countries, but right now in the United States, the elder care workforce is severely diminished. Yes, there are shortages of nurses and other healthcare workers in nearly every setting, but the shortages are the worst in assisted living facilities and nursing homes. And as I mentioned in episode 41, placing a family member in care does not reduce the caregiving amount. It just changes up the caregiving activities. You are still very much involved in their care. So here are some ideas for what to do and talk about during your visits with your family member. The first thing is, Use pictures. Many of you like to share current events with your loved one living with dementia, who's getting married or divorced, who's having a baby, who's graduating, what the grandkids are up to. It's natural to share what I call the current events. When sharing this information, use pictures and photographs. 
if there are photographs around the person's room of, let's say, all the grandkids, and you are talking about a specific grandchild, you may want to bring the picture to you or have them look at the picture and point to the person, the picture of the person you are talking about. And this really helps the person living with dementia focus on the conversation. And it makes the conversation less abstract because the other reason to do what I just said, to, to use photographs to supplement your conversation is in the moderately severe and severe stages, the people are usually having more difficulty understanding verbal language because the temporal lobes are shrinking and you may be saying the names of different people and they're not processing. If you are adding visual cues, that may help with the communication. You can also bring old photographs to encourage reminiscing. The photographs can be in scrapbooks, photo albums, or digitalized and housed in a device. Or if you are like me, they can be in a shoebox because you never got around to organizing them. If this is the case, you can take advantage of these visits to look at the photographs and then you can put them in a photo album as you are, as the two of you are looking at the photographs together. So this could even be an activity that your family member can participate in to the extent that they, they can. I also hear people tell me that they hesitate to visit their loved one because I don't know what to talk about. I don't know what to say. Or I had one person say to me, it's a, it's a real one-sided conversation. I'm just doing all the talking and they're just looking at me. Your family member may only have access to really remote memories, like childhood memories. You can engage them by saying something like, tell me, do you like dogs or cats? And then have them respond. And you may find out that they had a, a favorite kitten when they were younger and, and tell you the story about how they got the kitten. Rather than you asking them, did you have a pet as a child, if you start out with something more general about liking, having a preference for one type of pet versus another, that can help them get to those memories without putting them on the spot. Or you could even say, and you say this in the present tense because you're not sure where they are in their own timeline because people tend to move backwards in time, you can ask, what is your favorite thing about your mother? Or what, what do you like most about your father? If your family member living with dementia is a sibling, asking about the distant past may be easier because you have shared memories. And you can lead off with, I remember the time that we, and then you fill in the blank, and maybe followed up with, boy, we did some crazy things, and engage with them in that way. If you are talking with your family member and they suddenly interrupt you and they begin talking about a topic that seems completely unrelated, just let them go. In fact, go with them. And here is what I mean by this. Let's say you're sitting, visiting your mom 
and you are telling her about your youngest child's upcoming wedding. Out of nowhere, your mom blurts out, I wonder whatever happened to the cat, which you're like, where'd that come from? That's from left field. You may be tempted to either ignore the comment and continue on with your description of the upcoming activities, or you may stop and ask, what cat? Instead, another approach is to reply with, tell me more or tell me about the cat. What seems unrelated to you on the surface may actually be linked in your family member's memory. Your mom may be accessing a memory of your youngest child playing with her cat when you brought the kids over for a visit. So you're talking about your youngest child and you're getting ready for the wedding and she's thinking, oh yeah, Mark, that's right. He used to play with with Tiger the cat when he came over to visit. So what seems very unrelated to you is actually a linked memory. Another thing to do when speaking with people living with dementia, especially in the later stages, is to pause more. People living with dementia take longer to process and to respond. We often ask them a question and wait about three seconds and then launch into something else. And then they do respond to that question, but we're like five paragraphs ahead and we're thinking, wow, they're really disoriented. No, you're moving too fast. So take it slow. Give your family member the time and space to share their thoughts. Become more comfortable with the silence. You may find yourself surprised with your loved one's responses if you give them a chance to respond. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to provide some more tips. So stay tuned. Now, as the dementia deepens, your family member may become less verbal, or maybe they don't speak at all. And that can be difficult for visits because I have family members say, I'm just, I feel like I'm just talking at her. I, I don't know what, what we can do. I don't know, you know, how she's going to respond. Music is always a good go-to. Do you know what music they like and bring it to them? You can play music from a streaming service like Sirius or Pandora. My late father loved music from the 1950s and he had a subscription to Sirius and only listened to the 1950s music channel. To him, it was worth paying like the hundred bucks a year or whatever it was because he loved his 1950s music. Or you can make a playlist and save it to your smartphone or another device and listen to the music together. I used to have iTunes and I still have my Nano iPod around the house. I still listen to it. And I actually had to Google how to make a playlist and put it on my smartphone. So I'm not the person to tell you how to do it. But if you are trying to create a playlist on a digital device, I would just Google it and follow the instructions or there's probably a YouTube video showing you how to do it. Now, another activity 
is to take the person outside. Because people living in facilities, at least in the United States, rarely go outside unless they're going, like, say, to a doctor's appointment. But most people living in an assisted living or a nursing home may have the clinicians coming to them. Most facilities have some type of nurse practitioner, physician, somebody who goes and sees the individuals in the facility or may have an office in the facility. Ask the staff to help you get your loved one in a wheelchair if they're not in one or if they can walk around the room, but you're not sure if they would tolerate a longer walk or you're concerned about falling. Ask the staff to get you a wheelchair and and put them in a wheelchair and then take them outside, weather permitting. Most facilities have some type of patio or courtyard or depending on the type of facility, they may be part of a complex with sidewalks and you can go all around the outside of the facility. If the weather is yucky, go for a trip throughout the facility. This is especially good if your loved one resides in a large facility where you can go to the main living room or some of the different solariums or if they live in a facility that's made up of multiple connected buildings, you can go for a wheelchair ride all through the different buildings. When my family member spent a brief time in long-term care because of a hospitalization, that's what we did. I would literally um, have her walk a little further each time I visited And what I did is I would follow her with the wheelchair. So the first time she walked maybe 10, 15 feet, and then she sat in the wheelchair and we cruised all over the facility. It was two or three buildings together and we could make a a nice lap around the facility. And then over time, she was able to walk like a couple hundred yards. And that's what we would do. I would have her walk to a certain area and then follow her with the wheelchair. So depending on the functional status of your loved one, that may be something to do as well. But as long as you feel comfortable and safe doing this, if there is any concern about falls or the, or the ability to walk for any length of time or distance, you may just want to opt for the wheelchair route from the very beginning. You also may want to think about some of your family members' favorite activities that they enjoyed before they experienced the dementia and think about ways you could do it together. Maybe you can give your family member a manicure. I know some of the people I see in in clinic their family members will actually take them for an outing to their favorite nail salon and have them get their nails done. But if this is no longer feasible, and if you're good at it, you may want to do your family member's nails yourself. I can't even do mine, so I wouldn't even try to do someone else's nails. That That would be a disaster. Or maybe you can read them pages from a beloved book. Another option is to bring them a favorite meal or treat prepared so that they can eat it themselves or you can easily assist them. For example, if your family member loves chocolate cake, 
but can no longer correctly use utensils, bring them a cupcake and cut it in half for easy handling. You may also want to have some wet wipes handy for the post-treat cleanup, especially if it's something that is going to be messy. Here's another thought. Does your family member love animals? If the facility allows it and your family member will enjoy this, bring your dog, your cat, or whatever pet you have as long as the animal is not stressed by the activity. When I lived in Virginia, I spent three months conducting a research study in a rural nursing home. One of the family members brought her horse to the facility because her grandmother used to ride and own horses. She and her sister loaded the horse onto the trailer, drove to the facility, and unloaded the horse in the parking lot. Then one of them would stay with the horse while the other retrieved grandmother and brought her out to the parking lot in her wheelchair. The older woman happily fed the horse carrots, and then the three of them would take the horse to the back of the facility where there was a large grassy area, and they would visit while the horse, you know, grazed in the grass. It was really cool. Another question I get asked is, should we bring babies and children to visit? I've seen many people living with dementia suddenly become very alert and engaged when babies and children come by for a visit. Babies and toddlers don't notice dementia, but preschool and school-aged children, and by school-aged, I'm referring to children up to age 10 or 11, may be wary of an adult who is confused and who may act in a way that other adults don't act. Before the visit, explain to your child in a way that is appropriate for their age and developmental stage, your child best, that your family member is very forgetful but loves to see them. You may want to bring, bring crowns and coloring books or drawing paper and have them color or draw during the visit and leave a picture or a drawing as a gift. And make sure you bring tape to fasten the drawings on the wall and, and get them involved in hanging it up. If the facility lets you do that, some get very fussy about tape on the wall because it pulls off the paint. And those facilities often have a cork board, like a bulletin board with the cork components for cards and pictures. And if that's the situation, make sure you keep some extra thumbtacks or push pins so that you can fasten the picture or the colored page before you leave. The thing is, your child the best. And on one hand, I don't think it's a good idea to totally shield them from the situation and they never get to see grandma or uncle Fred who has memory problems. But on the other hand, if the person living with dementia engages in a lot of very unusual or scary behaviors, then you don't want to expose your child to that situation. So it's pretty much a judgment call for you as the parent. Hopefully, this podcast provided some ideas for ways to engage with your family member living with dementia when you visit them. Some families have visitor books where visitors can write the day they visited and leave a short note. The visitor book serves 
as a way for family members to show the person living with dementia that they have had visitors when the person states that no one ever comes to see them. I would not advise using the visitor book to, quote, make them understand that people do visit. I think these books can be helpful as a reassurance. Hey, Dad, check it out. All of your kids came by to see you last week, and so did the pastor from our church. On the other hand, sometimes those books cause arguments because the person living with dementia does not recall the visits and may say something along the lines of, I don't care what the book says, nobody ever comes to see me. So again, that's a tool to use if you think it would be helpful, or if you yourself want an idea of, of who's coming by to see your family member. Okay, I hope you found this podcast helpful. If you have questions or ideas, please reach out rita.jablonski at gmail.com and the information is in the show notes. Also, I do have my book, Make Dementia Your Bitch, where it has a lot of great information for understanding and managing many behaviors that happen from the very beginning of the dementia journey all the way to the end. And I recently had a listener purchase 20 copies of my book and give it out to his support group. And that, that meant a lot to me because the fact that he thought it was so helpful that he felt called to purchase this book and distribute it to members of his support group. That's the kind of endorsement that that means the most because if I wrote the book to help family caregivers, because there's so much stupid shit out there. You go to the Alzheimer's, not not to, to bust on the Alzheimer's website, Alzheimer's Association, but so many of these websites have information. They're like, oh, your family member may do A, B, and C. And you're thinking, yeah, no kidding. I'm living there. What do I do about it? And that's my biggest beef with a lot of resources out there. They say, oh, yes, your family member may do something. Or, and they don't tell you what to do about it. Or they'll say things like, be calm. Oh, please, really? That, 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 that's not real helpful. So I like to give detail. And I like very concrete direction because I'm not a big fan of people telling me to do something and they don't tell me how to do it. And I'll give you a, a great screw up that I did yesterday. So many of you listening know I ride horses and I competed in this season's first dressage show. Dressage is a discipline where you take your horse and you ride into this arena and the arena fencing is like 10 inches off the ground. And it's there that way for a reason because the whole purpose of dressage is to make sure that you and your horse cooperate as a team, that you're not trying that your horse is so not so out of control that it's leaving the the little arena with the plastic fence around it because let's face it if the horse wants to it's going to step over that so anybody can ride a horse in a place with a four-foot fence that the horse some horses can jump it but keeping your horse in this rectangle where the boundaries of the rectangle are literally 10 inches off the ground is 
pretty challenging. So I rode two tests and I place first in both. So yay, I was pretty happy about it. I was shocked to be honest with you. But when you compete, you have to get your horse ready. And there's certain rules about you have to trim the mane and fix the tail. So my trainer said to me, oh, make sure you trim his tail. Because Zydeco's tail was like, it, it ended in a point and she wanted it blunt cut, where it's trimmed and neatly in a even, almost like cutting bangs. I go to cut my horse's tail and I have scissors. Here, I cut off six inches because I cut it and it wasn't even, so I cut it some more. So by the time I was done, I had lopped off six inches. Oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to enter the arena and I hear my trainer say, make a comment like, man, you really screwed up that tail. You, you cut too much off of it. Pam, I love you, but it would have been nice if you said to me, oh, cut the horse's tail and only take an inch off. Don't lop off like half a foot. Again, this happens to me all the time where in the riding world, someone tells me to do something and I go off and do it. I don't know what I don't know. So I don't know to ask. So I wind up screwing something up. So right now, everybody at the show was busting my chops about I need to buy my horse tail extensions for the next show. Yes, that's a thing. There are people who spend a lot of money on horse tail extensions. Screw that. I'm not doing it. But the moral of the story is I am very sensitive to being told to do something and not knowing what I don't know and screwing it up. So that's why I try to be as concrete as possible in these podcasts. Thank you for listening. And like I said, questions, comments, concerns, send me a message. I love to hear from my listeners. And also I have a special message for the state troopers of Manatee County, Florida. I found out that I have some fans there who are listening to my podcast. So thank you very much. And apparently one of the field training officers has been recommending it to the rookies as almost a, a way to learn about dementia since they do tend to encounter people living with dementia who are driving and shouldn't be. And that's all. Again, I, I took care of that in a, in a couple earlier podcasts. So to the Florida State Troopers of Troop F, thank you so much. And together, let's go forth and make dementia our bitch.